You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, September 24th, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, folks. How are you all tonight? Doing good, Evan. All right. Yeah. Happy birthday to the answering machine, which was invented on September 27th, 1950. Now, for... The bulk of our audience, I will now describe what an answering machine is. (laughs) An answering machine was a little box that you used to plug your phone into, and when you weren't there at home because you couldn't take your phone with you back then, the answering machine would pick up and people would leave messages. And it was very exciting. We would leave prank messages sometimes. We would have prank recordings on our answering machines. Yeah, you mean the outgoing message was a prank? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a time of pranks. Oh, I hated that one where someone would say hello and then wait a few seconds. You're speaking to the answering machine, then you say something and it says, oh, yes, hi, how you doing? And then another pause. And you think you're speaking to someone, but it's a damn answering machine. Hated it. <laughs> and don't forget, this wasn't saved to a hard drive or a solid state drive. This was like a cassette tape that all, that all of this action is happening on. I bet you in the 50s it was some <laughs> reel-to-reel device that took up three rooms like the Univac or something. <laughs> I, I found on a, a website that the answering machine was invented on this day in 1950. But I've also found elsewhere that the first commercial answering machine went on the market in 1949. Uh, and that was called the Telemagnet. And the Ooh. problem is that I'm in the midst huh? of moving house and I could not, <laughs> I could not suss all this stuff out before we'd started this recording. So I'll, I'll mention that. And I'll also mention, and I think that this came up in a previous science or fiction years and years ago or, or something, but, uh, really the first answering machine was invented in 1898 by a man named Valdemar Polson. And this was basically a recorder that was used for Mm. uh, recording uh, conversations on the telephone. And it was the basis for what eventually became the mass-produced answer machine. So it's a dubious day in history, but, you know, I'm, I'm going with it. (laughs) <laughs> but the first, when I'm reading, the first commercially successful answering machine was the Ansiphone in 1960 in the United States. Yeah, the Telmagnet 1949 was recorded a message on a magnetic wire. Wow. Sold for $200, but That's was not, not a commercial success. You know, I remember when uh, there was a short period where cell phone companies would charge you just for voicemail for like a dollar a month. And I just found mm-hmm. that ridiculous. <laughs> Can't even imagine a $200 answering machine. The telephone is definitely one of those things that has changed consistently over the years. And you could like tell, like you could date a movie by the phones. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, pr- pretty well, e- even as well as you can say with computers, you know. I've done that several times where I'm watching a film and, you know, sometimes a film will be set in a certain period, but they don't come out and tell you right away. Like a lot of indie Mm -hmm. films will do that. And I'm really just always looking for telephones so I can figure out exactly when it's supposed to be. (laughs) Within a few Uh, years accuracy. Yeah. Well, Jay, this is one of the coolest things I think I've seen this week or even for a while. It's a a very interesting uh, 
ad campaign by NVIDIA, the graphics card maker. Tell us about it. Yeah, it was very cool, Steve. I mean, I absolutely love that era of space exploration, you know, the 1960s, early 1970s, uh, just the whole look of that series of missions that the United States did. To me, it's it's like one of my favorite historical moments. I love World War II. I love space exploration in that in that decade. Just awesome. So back in July uh, 16th, 1969, the Apollo 11 launched to the moon. Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong were the lucky guys selected to to land on the moon and actually walk on the moon. A lot of people think it was faked, and they make a lot of uh, a lot of remarks about why it wasn't real. And this is some of the remarks that come out. So, common claim is that no stars were visible in a lot of the pictures or all the pictures that were taken on the lunar surface. That the shadows on the moon make no sense. Also, I heard that people believe that the way that the astronauts actually moved, the way that they, they jumped around on the lunar surface. There's probably a couple of dozen points out there that people have brought up over several past decades trying to refute the idea that we did or did not land on the moon. The fact is, I'm going to break it to you now, yes, the United States did land on the moon. They landed on the moon more than once. Uh, there's artifacts on the moon. By use of the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, they've seen not only uh, leftover space vehicles and other things, but they actually could see the footprints of the astronauts, like these long, you know, single-file footprints that the astronauts left as they were That's jumping. cool. Yeah, isn't that awesome? That's you can see exactly cool. where they went because really, it's, you know, arguably it hasn't changed really at all because there's no weather or much activity happening on the moon other than stuff flying in from outer space. Mm-hmm. So NVIDIA created a, a new chip called the Maxwell, and the team that developed this developed uh, a way to show off this chip. They created a 3D software technology that allows them to bounce light off of all of the rendered objects uh, but much more accurately than anybody has ever done before. And this is one hell of an achievement because the processor power needed and the software needed is Incredible. It's just one, you know, something that hasn't really been achieved to this level of detail before. And I don't even think we've gotten even close to this level of detail before. The engineers had to model every 3D object that they found on the moon. So that includes the spacecraft, the astronauts, uh, the lunar, the lunar soil, the rocks, you know, any objects that were on the lander that were reflecting light. They were actually simulating detail down to what kind of materials were used to help simulate the actual effects of light bouncing off of it. So they selected a very popular picture of, now I believe that Neil Armstrong was already on the surface, and this was a picture of Buzz Aldrin getting out of the lunar lander, and Neil mm-hmm. Armstrong was taking the picture. So yeah. you, you see it's a very iconic picture of an astronaut coming down the ladder right before they touch the ground. Now this was the picture that they decided to duplicate. So here's a little bit of their process. They had to figure out how the light actually reflects on the moon differently than here on Earth. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that light doesn't simply just come in straight lines from the light source, say, in the room that you're in. If you look at the light source in your room, I just turned my head and looked up at the light on the ceiling. You know, light, of course, is coming in a perfectly straight line from that light source to me. But it's also hitting almost everything, if not everything else that I'm sitting in the room with. And those objects are reflecting light to me and on other objects, which then again reflect light to me. Right? And it just it keeps going. You know, the, the amount of reflections, I bet, you could it'd be interesting to try, do a calculation on just how many reflections are happening and how much of that light 
How many times did it bounce before it actually gets to you? And that, that gives a room or a, a space or any kind of area a particular kind of illumination. And the illumination that a lot of people saw on the moon in the photographs seemed very strange to them. But there's a lot of significant differences between the moon and the earth. You know, in particular, the moon does not have an atmosphere. And that, that does a very dramatic thing to the way that light looks on the moon. It looks a lot more stark. There isn't any diffusion happening, meaning that the light that's coming in through the earth's atmosphere, it gets scattered and it softens the light. And on a cloud cover day, if you notice, if you take pictures outside on a cloud cover day, you can get some of the best pictures outside because what's happening is all that sunlight is hitting the tops of the clouds and the clouds are diffusing the light a lot and it makes everything look really soft and you can, you can take very nice pictures without any, you know, harsh shadows on somebody's face and everything. It's very evenly lit. The moon is the exact opposite of that. The moon, there is no evenly lit nothing on the moon. You know, the vast majority of everything has a very, very bright light on it or it's almost completely in the dark. However, that being said, objects are bouncing a lot of that really harsh light very powerfully in all directions. So when the team took into account as they're trying to simulate this picture, all the different reflections and the different surfaces and the textures on those surfaces and how reflective are they and what direction are that those different light, light rays going to be bouncing in, they did a simulation of the astronaut getting out of the lunar lander, and it looked good, but it didn't look exactly like what they expected. And they're like, wow, the, the astronaut isn't as lit up in this picture as we expected the astronaut to be to simulate the original picture. So they were saying that the astronaut just was dimmer than in the original picture. So they figured out, they completely forgot to factor in the photographer, which I believe was Neil Armstrong taking a picture of Buzz Aldrin. And when they put his spacesuit into the 3D rendering, bounced light off of it, there was so much light coming off of that spacesuit because of how reflective it was. And if you remember, those guys were wearing almost, you know, stark white spacesuits. They were reflecting light like crazy. And the material that they that they were made out of uh, as well is very reflective. They popped that spacesuit in there, and all of a sudden, the picture looks almost identical, or their 3D rendering looks almost identical to the original picture. Take a look at the image, guys. You can see it anywhere online. If you just look up NVIDIA Maxwell Moon or NVIDIA Moon, you'll, you'll be able to find lots of different images of this. And it's, it's amazing how close that they got. Now, Jay, just to, to point this one thing out, the uh, moon hoax, you know, conspiracy theorists have argued that in this very picture, because Buzz Aldrin is in the shadow of the lander, that he should be basically black, that you shouldn't be able to see him at all because of the lack of diffusion, because they are not taking into consideration the interreflections, you know, especially, I mean, the biggest one of which is Neil Armstrong himself, who's just this bright light source shining back on Buzz Aldrin. So this completely blows that out of the water. That's right, Steve. Neil Armstrong was actually standing far enough away from the lunar lander where he had direct sunlight hitting him. And he, in essence, was like a light reflector. If you've ever done yeah. any kind of photography or film, you know, you use a, a mylar reflector to bounce light. And he was, he was that times five because, because of the material and because of how large he is. He was, he was like a flashlight, huge flashlight lighting up Buzz Aldrin as he was coming down the ladder. Yeah. So another thing people are saying about this experiment that, that NVIDIA did was it's yet another way of, in essence, debunking those lunar lander critics or, or the people that, that don't believe it, that don't believe that we landed on the moon because they couldn't have 
produced the lunar environment, then they couldn't have taken pictures with that kind of lighting. They couldn't have simulated that in a studio. It just would not have been feasible for a lot of reasons. And this, this experiment that was done with the, by the Maxwell team at NVIDIA proves it. So there's, you know, another example of how there was no way that they had the technology 40, 50 years ago in order to fake the moon landing. Yeah. I mean, essentially in 1969, they would have had to, if they shot this in the studio, they would have had to simulate the lighting on the moon in such a way that it would have withstood a recreation 45 years in the future with, you know, advanced graphics computer technology they could not possibly have anticipated would exist. If there was like what, you know, if there were stage lights or anything else going on in here, then the, the rendering, the NVIDIA rendering wouldn't have worked. Right. It wouldn't have simulated. Would have revealed something different. Right? Yeah. Would have shown something different. So in essence, what I'm saying is we, we need to spend money to go back to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's here, here. We, I do also want to point out that they use this, they use their, their graphics card also to increase the exposure of the photos on the surface. Oh yeah, that was cool. And they, and so the other argument is why are there no stars in the sky? Oh, God. Oh, and God, if the worse. answer is because it's daytime, you know, this, the, people think, oh, the sky's black. On Earth, the sky is black at night, and so you should see the stars. But it's still daytime on the noon, moon when they're filming, and that all that light is just washing out the stars. The stars are too dim. But with their technology, they increased the exposure. And mm-hmm. you know, so, of course, anything, the lunar surface, anything on the lunar surface becomes a total whiteout. But the black lunar sky... It becomes light enough where you can see the stars. The stars come out. So they are there. The stars are there in the background. You just can't see them because of the exposure. Oh, my God. So they're actually detectable to prove that they are there. Yes. That's epic. <laughs> That's not going to convince any of the hoaxers, though. I mean, right? Well, nothing's going to convince gonna buy, them. They're not going to buy that. No, I don't think so, Ev. Yeah. Well, once you, once you buy the conspiracy, then evidence becomes irrelevant because the government, how much, I wonder how much the government paid Nvidia to fake this, you know, to cover up their 45 year old conspiracy. Exactly. It just goes and goes and goes. Yep. All right. Thanks, Jay. There was an interesting, uh, study published recently looking at uh, genetically modified organisms, uh, the GMO crops and their safety. But the researchers did something very interesting. Ironically, like anti-GMO um, critics will say that, you know, that, oh, you know, the GMO is basically one big experiment on us. They're using the world as the guinea pig. And, you know, I don't think that's fair. But interestingly, in a way, they're correct because you can look at the effect that the introduction of GMOs have had in the last 20 years and see what happened. Specifically, looking at animal feed. Um, and there's a, a unique opportunity because GMO feed was completely unheard of prior to 20 years ago, right? Because uh, it wasn't approved yet. And then after it was approved, it was rapidly adopted. And now something on the order of 95% of all animal feed is GMO. And that happened very quickly, just over a few years. So we have, so you could compare the health of livestock prior to 1996, when the first GMO food was approved, and in say 2000 to 2010 area, 
when most of our feed animals were eating GMO. Further, uh, because of regulations, every single animal has to be inspected at some point because you can't process the meat from a sick cow, for example. You know, if he's infected or if he's got tumors or whatever, uh, you, you know, you can't obviously send diseased meat, you know, to the processing plant. So cows are usually inspected or, and, you know, any, uh, slaughter animals prior to being slaughtered and then, and then afterwards as well, postmortem. And those statistics are tracked. So even though this wasn't done for the purpose of tracking the effect of eating genetically modified crops or feed, in essence, it was set up like a very good experiment, you know, because you are tracking an, an outcome, you know, reported disease rates on animals that are being slaughtered. And uh, we have a, a time period with zero GMO and then a time period with, our, you know, after rapid adoption of mostly GMO. In essence, this amounts to billions of animals and trillions of GMO meals you know, since 1996. That's a huge data set. Yeah, if each animal, you know, eats a thousand meals over three years, you know, that's a billion animals, that's a trillion meals, right? Yep, sounds right. So, yeah, so the order of magnitude is about right. Okay, so a systematic review was recently published where they looked at two things. They looked at a systematic review of existing feeding trials so this is smaller studies looking at the effects of GMO on you know being fed in a controlled experiment with two animals and uh, they concluded from these trials they, there are both short term short term meaning not uh, 90 days or less and then long term which are like 2 year trials and their conclusion was that there's no hazard at all I said, they, they, here's a quote from the conclusion. Results from all the 24 studies do not suggest any health hazards, and in general, there were no statistically significant differences within parameters observed. So the evidence that we have does not show any, um, from specific trials, does not show any problem with, with the GMO. But I think the more interesting bit is looking at all of the data uh, from just, you know, out there in the real world feeding animals GMO and they found that there was essentially no increase in any of the outcomes that are, that you would follow, right? In fact, there was there was a, a continuation of the steady decrease that has been happening just as the industry improves its methods. So, if it were true that there were really any measurable significant negative health effect from feeding. Uh, animals GMO uh, feed, this study, which is includes billions of animals collectively, would certainly have picked it up. You'd have to come up with some reason why it would be hidden in this kind of data. This You would think that a- any negative effect would easily be, sh- be shown given how large a data set they had to work with and, and actually a, p- a pretty reasonable comparison that's being made. Critics can't say there are no long-term studies. They can't say that it hasn't been adequately studied. You know, they're often they still point to these outliers, these like one-off studies that are complete outliers that like the Seralini study, for example. And then there's some farmer in Europe said, my pigs got sick when I fed them GMO corn. That's their evidence. <laughs> it's, it's literally just an anecdote from one farmer. 
It's like, okay, here's 19 years, <laughs> billions of animals. Two sick pigs in Poland and, ah, GMOs are awful. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. I mean, that's pretty compelling. Come on. It's pretty nice compelling. Data, nice data it set. Is. Very nice. Yeah. Steve, how, how new is this, um, this result? Uh, it was published, I wrote about it September 11th, so it was published a few weeks ago. Well, I, I bet you can't wait to whip that or get that new, that new approach out to, pe- to people, huh? Yeah, I mean, if you want to see how people respond, go to our Facebook page and look at the mm. comments underneath the link to this article, to my blog post about it. You know, and then you will weep for humanity. <laughs> I've, I've, I've cried enough. More than once. Yeah, unfortunately, anymore. like slam dunk scientific evidence, once again, is not going to be the thing that puts this conspiracy to rest. Right. Unfortunately. But yeah, and we, and we never really should expect that it would, but anything like this that marginalizes them to a maximal amount is good. That's 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 really the yeah, only and, goal. And I do think I do think it'll help people who are on the fence, who don't know mm-hmm. much about the issue, who start to look into it, like this is the sort of thing that will hopefully push people in the right direction. And just, you know, before we get the emails cuz you know, GMO is one of the topics that we talk about and it, there there's a lot of different angles and complexities to this. Like we're not talking about the environmental effects or the legal effects of patenting seeds, etc. This is just the safety of of the GMOs that are out there as feed, right? That's basically what this this study is addressing. But you know, we've talked about those other issues on the show at other times. Um, it is it is an in, very interesting topic. You know, I found it to be as uh, very very similar to anthropogenic global warming. Essentially, the same thing is happening. You have a pretty strong scientific consensus based upon solid evidence. I actually think the evidence for the safety of GMO is more robust. Than our, you know, models about climate change. Yeah. You know, don't interpret that as me not accepting this, the consensus <laughs> on climate change. I'm just saying. You totally see that. Coming. Yeah. <laughs> but there's, there are, de- there are degrees of robustness. I think like the, the notion that evolution happened is far and away the most mm. robust scientific conclusion that's out there. You know, even the IPP is saying, IPCC is saying, yeah, 95%. Yeah, that's pretty good, but 95% is 95%. Whereas evolution is like 99.9999 whatever percent that that's the, the explanation for the, the diversity of life. And the safety of GMO, we're getting, you know, up north of 99% with that in terms of the evidence that we have. It's, it's pretty solid. And still, and people who though are anti-GMO, in my opinion, are using the same tactics of denial and motivated reasoning as people who deny the consensus on global warming. Very, very similar. All right. Well, Rebecca, you're going to tell us about a, a kind of pareidolia I don't know if you've talked about before. We have, actually. Uh, according to Evan, which I did not, I didn't fact check Evan. I, oh. I'm just trusting him on this. And he didn't even sound okay. sure. But (laughs) I do think we we talked about this years and years and years ago. There's an article uh, in Wired by Greg Miller reporting on the multitude of studies that have been done in the past several years all about phantom cell phone vibrations. Have you guys ever had this experience where you are walking along and you definitely feel your cell phone vibrate in your pocket? So you reach in, you pull it out, and there's no call. Or you reach into your pocket and your cell phone isn't even in there. 
Has yes, that, yes. Uh, that yes. has happened many many absolutely times. many so times. So 100% for our panel. Uh, and yeah, many studies have found, um, anywhere from two thirds of people up to over 90% of people, uh, who experience these phantom vibrations. Uh, and when I saw the like over 90% figure, I had to look it up. And sure enough, uh, according to, uh, I think the Pew, forum uh 90% of american adults have a cell phone now which i find really incredible um and yeah and it seems as though most of them are experiencing what seems like a hallucination uh which miller points out normally we think of hallucinations as things unwell people experience but surely the majority of the population doesn't have some sort of significant mental issue that's causing hallucinations. We would normally think of it. So what's going on here? And as Steve mentioned, yeah, it seems like this is a form of pareidolia. Normally, you know, earlier in the episode, we were talking about pareidolia. Normally, we think of it as seeing faces in random patterns. But it's really about our brain finding a significant pattern in random noise uh, through all of our senses. So that can be by sight, it can be audio, like when you play a record backwards and hear Satan's voice telling you to kill your family, uh, things like that. So, uh, <laughs> you know, just an example. Uh, <laughs> so it does seem like this is an example of that. David Laramie is a clinical psychologist who has studied this quite deeply. And he found that there were two major predictors of people who experience these phantom vibrations. Age, uh, so much younger people tended to experience them more often. And also how much people use their cell phones to like cheer themselves up or calm themselves down. Basically, the people who were going to their cell phones for an emotional hit. It seems as though when you look at all of the evidence together, it seems as though uh, what's happening most likely is that our brains are focusing very much on this important thing, something that's very important to us and something we are accustomed to uh, acknowledging through its vibration. So our brain is paying a lot of attention to vibrations on your upper leg, you know, right where your pocket is. And so it's going to be particularly sensitive to any kind of vibration that it feels there, which could be something as simple as, you know, your pants rubbing up against your leg. Miller pointed out that he picked up a pair of corduroys and counted out the ridges to determine that it's possible that if they scraped across your leg at a certain uh, speed, they could actually uh, come very close to simulating the vibration of a typical cell phone. So that was kind of cool. And so because you're so, some of us are so tuned in to looking for that sensation, our brains just sort of leaps into it and, and it picks up any kind of uh, feeling in our legs as that vibration. So, it's kind of cool, except for the apparently five to 10% of people who find this, uh, very bothersome to their lives. And for those people, there are some things that they can do. Uh, first and foremost would be turning off your vibration. 
uh, or just moving your phone to a different place. Like instead of having it in your pocket, keep it in your bag or something like that or your, your jacket. And over time, your brain will stop associating that specific location, your pocket or whatever, and that specific feeling of vibration. It'll stop associating it with that emotional hit you get from checking your phone and it'll stop being so annoyingly sensitive. So in the end, it seems like this isn't really a hallucination. It's just a really kind of interesting form of pareidolia that we can stop if we want, if we find it particularly bothersome. I'm glad there's, I'm glad there's a reasonable explanation. Uh, yeah, it's not actually ghosts trying to reach you or oh. it's not the, or it's not the death throes of my nerves, my nerve endings. Right. Yeah, <laughs> probably not having a stroke. So, oh, I did also, I found a, a fun stat that according to Pew, uh, 67% of people check their phone even when they don't notice ringing or vibration, which I think speaks to how connected we are to our phones. Cause I've, I've done that, but most often when I'm really bored and I want to look like I'm doing something, I'll pull out my phone and stare at it, even though it didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. But it makes you feel better. It does. Yeah. Emotional hit. All right, Bob, you're going to finish up the news section by telling us about nuclear batteries. Yeah, Bob. Yes, we are going to talk about battery technology yet again. So there's been some new exciting possibilities for batteries recently. and But this time, it's quite a departure from what we're used to talking about. This is called beta voltaics, and they could potentially power future devices like cars and even spaceships using electrons from radioactive decay from the weak force. Now, beta voltaics is actually not a new idea, a new idea at all. It's over 50 years old. Um, there was even a, a consumer product that you could use, uh, such as pacemakers in the 1970s. They were powered by beta voltaics and, uh, but it, they didn't last too long. I don't think because, uh, cheaper and more conventional batteries became really more popular at that time. That doesn't mean that you can't buy things that use these, uh, nu- nuclear energies right now. Um, they're pretty common, actually. For example, uh, emergency exit signs. I know we never, you don't buy those, but we have seen them over and over. They rely on radioluminescence to light up during a power outage, uh, using the radioactive decay of tritium, uh, to light the sign. Um, smoke detectors, uh, two are an example. They create a small amount of current, uh, using the, uh, alpha radiation produced by the radioactive isotope americium 241. And I know this current isn't really used to power, though it's used to uh, to detect uh, smoke. Uh, people seem to have this innate fear of, of even just the words radiation and nuclear. Uh, but I think it's pretty clear, though, that it can be very, very safe and useful. Now, um, beta voltaics works as a battery by converting beta particles, which are really just high-energy electrons that are produced by radioactive decay into current that can be used. The process is interesting. First, a neutron in a radioactive atom spontaneously converts into a proton. Yes, that does happen. Just changes right from a neutron into a proton. But uh, the proton, though, it doesn't have quite the mass that a neutron does. So the, the ledgers have to balance, though. So where where does the extra mass go? Can you guys guess? Heaven? Okay. <laughs> Electron heaven. It goes into the creation of an electron. 
plus a neutrino, but uh, we can't Ooh. tap into those yet. Ow. But uh, so it creates it creates electrons. Uh, that's what's the the little le- leftover mass. Well, the leftover mass from a neutron. Uh, if you you know the the proton and electron, if you add them up, they pretty much match the mass of a neutron. So this is what beta decay is, and it's mediated by my least favorite fundamental force of nature, the weak force or weak interaction. Even though I'm not as into it as the other forces, it's pretty critical to even our existence. Um, so that force, by the way, was shown to be uh, this uh, this weak interaction is actually um, shown to be just one face of the electroweak force. They actually unified uh, the two forces, a uh, combination of electromagnetism and the weak force, uh, which is similar to how electricity and magnetism are, are really just different ways we can experience electromagnetism. So that's just an interesting aside. So beta voltaics has, uh, it has issues though, uh, which has limited its use. For example, it's not very efficient. It's best for low power applications, especially in remote locations. You could imagine, uh, if you've got a, you know, a device in Antarctica that doesn't take much power, this would, this would be a great way to do it. The power output decreases over time, which is of course related to its half-life. Um, the radiation that's emitted usually wreaks havoc with sensitive semiconductors, so not good. Um, and there's also, like I mentioned earlier, there's this general negative perception by the public of just this whole idea. So those are pretty potent downsides that have done a lot to uh, diminish its use and research into it, I guess. Uh, so the potential upsides, though, are pretty awesome. Beta voltaics can last for years, literally years, uh, without being replaced. And uh, and they can also work in hazardous environments uh, that conventional batteries could, could never do. So this is where the researchers at the University of Missouri come in. They made some really interesting progress in dealing with a lot of these issues I mentioned, especially regarding efficiency. So their their radioactive material of choice is strontium ninety, and for the strontium. first time, um, yes, for the first time uh, they're using that in conjunction with a water based solution. And water is important here for a couple reasons. First of all, it's um, generally a great shield against uh, some types of radiation. A lot of nuclear reactors use it to absorb neutrons, uh, for example, that which would uh, prevent it from overheating and uh, creating a potential meltdown. Apparently, this could be a shield then, uh, preventing radiation from damaging sensitive electronics. But you know, a lot of uh, a lot of websites implied uh, as much. But I don't really, I'm not sure how much of a benefit the water is in this regard. Uh, there's just not that much water in, in this type of application. You, you could really just use some thin foil and it would uh, actually shield it very well, which, which actually goes to the point of how safe this is. But the main advance here seems to be that the researchers and engineers are taking advantage of the fact there's a good amount of stored radiation energy infused within the water, which has never been ex- really been studied or exploited before. To me, I think this is the real advance here, taking advantage of that to increase the efficiency and uh, making this much uh, more worthy of a, of a real deeper look. So, of course, I'm keeping my expectations low. I, I'm pretty much immune to, announce, to announcements of the latest breakthrough in battery technology. I'm just so tired of it. I just want to see results. I don't want to keep hearing all these different theories that everyone's coming out with for these these amazing leaps in technology that just not ha- that just aren't happening. You know, with any device like this, and all sorts of problems can just totally derail it. For example, a nuclear battery like this, it would not be inherently dangerous, but we know how inept people can be, right? Who knows how people are gonna could mishandle this or do all sorts of crazy stuff? I mean, look what they're doing with iPhones. 
I saw I saw somebody throw liquid nitrogen on an iPhone and then smash it to bits, or they put it in microwaves. So so who knows? I'm not sure what would happen if you just really abused some you know some beta voltaic technology. But it, the benefits I think are worth pursuing. It could be pretty awesome to have a decent power source. You know, something that we could use, you know, maybe even for a cell phone. Can you imagine a phone that could, who, I'm just going to throw a number out there. Imagine a phone that just lasts for like months, even, you know, months without, without a charge. That to me, that's just it. like, uh, that's, that is heaven. It'd have to be essentially tamper proof. Possibly. But I mean, Steve, look at your, your smoke detector and fire detectors and things. There, you know, there's, you know, radioactive material in there. There's, it's very little and even some of them release even gamma rays, but they're very, you know, they're really just so minimal. There's nothing to worry about. But if you cracked one open and started inhaling stuff, that could cause issues and you don't really. That's how the Hulk too- was made. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> little known fact. So you don't really hear much about that. Um, so I mean, you, so you could abuse common everyday uh, radioactive sources. So I don't know. I, we'll just see what the what the pluses are for this, and what you know what it would take to make it extra extra safe. And it and if it doesn't kill it, then we, maybe we will see these in more common use. All right. Well, Evan, who's that noisy time? All right, Steve and gang. I'm gonna play for you last week's Who's That Noisy. Let's see if you were able to get this one right. Here we go. The snap crackle pop, you know, like the Rice Krispies in the morning. Is that what it was? Was it Rice Krispies? It did sound like Rice Krispies. At least that's what I would have guessed it was, but it was not Rice Krispies. No, in fact, it is something called uh, exfoliation. Ever heard of this? You mean like taking dead skin off your face? Exactly, except it's not skin that's coming off your face. It's uh, rocks on the uh, surface of the earth that that are (laughs) rocks on the surface of the earth that are literally cracking and peeling away under your very feet. And if you had seen or gone to the uh, IFL Science dot com website on september 17th when we recorded the last show you would have found it explosive rock exfoliation caught on film so this is the audio from that film so uh, exfoliation a form of mechanical weathering in which curved slabs of rock detach and slow and break off from the rock below resulting in so-called exfoliation and several correct guesses so i guess some folks did go to that website uh or elsewhere and this week's uh winner is Jenny Lemberg from Toronto, Canada. You are this week's winner. Congratulations. Well done. Good job. And what do you got for this week? This week, episode number 481. Uh, Jay, if you don't get this one, I'm going to revoke your uh, Skeptic's Guide card. So you have to get this one right. Roger that. I'm not just a promoter of study technology. I'm not just a believer in study technology. I use this technology each and every day. I know exactly who I it think is. We all know of, who that is. Of who doesn't? What the <laughs> nice hell? Little, That's nice too easy. Little, a nice little softball occasionally. It's not a bad thing. Softball, it's a balloon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll get some interesting feedback on that one. Not only will people guess correctly, but they'll have some interesting comments, I think, to make about that particular subject. So I want to hear it. I want to hear everything you have to, to say about it. Go ahead. Now's your chance. WTN at Theskepticsguide.org is for the whoever ends up winning. You sh- mm-hmm. they should in- like everybody should include one sentence that they want you to read when 
about the subject when they win. And so whoever you choose, you read that sentence on the air. What a great idea. Thank you, Rebecca. I think we'll officially, let me check with the judges. Yes, they will officially accept that as, <laughs> as, as one of the outcomes for uh, the reveal for next week's Who's That Noisy? Uh, or go ahead and post it on our forums, sguforums.com. Good luck, everyone. All right. Thank you, Evan. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, stamps.com, the best way to avoid leaving your house or your office in order to mail something. $15.99 a month plus the cost of postage. For a business, that's nothing. It is so efficient. It is going to help you and your business in lots of different ways. Doesn't matter. Any letter, any package, any size. All you need is any computer and any old printer. Any printer will do, and you can start printing your own postage. It's really easy. All right, guys. So if you're interested, use our promo code SGU for this really special offer. It's a really no-risk trial, and check it out. It's, you also get a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage, and that's you could mail a lot of stuff with that. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com and click on the microphone at the very top of the homepage and type in SGU. That's stamps.com and then enter SGU. All right. Thanks, guys. Well, let's get back to our show. Coming up next is an interview with Daniel Dennett uh, that we recorded at TAM 2014. For those of you who are premium members and have access to premium content, the full version of this interview, which is more than twice as long as with the clip that we're including in this episode, will be available soon, probably next week. So keep an eye out for that. We are sitting here at TAMP 2014 with Professor Daniel Dennett. Professor Dennett, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Glad to be here. We appreciate you giving us your time. So Professor Dennett is a professor of mind, someone I've actually referred to quite often uh, myself in my own writings. You are the author of multiple books, including Freedom Evolves, Breaking the Spell, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, an excellent book, and in 1991, Consciousness Explained, which means... That Deepak Chopra owes you a million dollars, doesn't he? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Does he have, does he have a, 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 a challenge? Yes. Yeah, if you can explain consciousness, he'll give you a million dollars. Well, the thing is, you have to explain it to him. And yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the catch. Um, yeah, but he doesn't want you to use any of the latest neurological research, though. Neurocorrelates um, don't no. matter. At this no. He's not worth discussing, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so we'll move past Great. that. Wonderful so I've been attitude. dying to interview you because you know, I get into a lot of discussions about Cartesian <laughs> dualism and other types of dualism, David Chalmers, um, and I've blogged about it and so you get into lots of arguments about that. And I always cite you as my reference for, yeah, but you know, Daniel Dennett says the hard problem is not such a hard problem. So can you encapsulate for us what your, your current construction, how you put that together? Tell us about consciousness and why there isn't a hard problem, if that's your position. So David Chalmers came up with the term, the hard problem, which he claims is what's left over after you've solved the easy problems. Well, the easy problems are, I would say, all the problems. Mm -hmm. And they're not easy. They're tough. They're scientific uh, issues about how the brain accomplishes its various jobs. All of them. All of them. All of them. Humor, love, hate, wit, invention fantasy, the whole the whole bit. Everything that the whole menagerie of the mind has got to be encompassed. And there's by Chalmers lights, there's easy 
problems about all of this, and science, normal science will solve them. But then there's a higher problem. Well, I think that this is an innocently engendered cognitive illusion. He's, it's basically an error of arithmetic. Mm-hmm. He says, let's see, we got all these um, 1, 2, 3, 4, 78, 9,648 million easy problems. We've solved all them, but there's still the higher problem. How does he know that hidden among all the solutions to the easy problems isn't a solution to the higher problem? Mm-hmm. Um, very often, that's the case. When we think we've got one big problem, it turns out we solve it in the course of solving others without ever realizing it. I don't think he has any good way to identify the leftover program. I think the, this is clearly an artifact of the process of imagination of thinking about the issues. Mm-hmm. And I have uh, an antidote to it. And in fact, I introduced the antidote uh, before he introduced the hard problem, and I call it the hard question. Mm-hmm. In Consciousness Explained in 91, I wrote about what I called the hard question, which is very simple. It's, and then what happens? Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> uh, Here's how some theories of consciousness go. Mm-hmm. Let's just take vision. Uh, photons strike the rods and cones, and that sends signals uh, 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 through the uh, the ganglia and up to the lateral geniculate nucleus and up to V1 and blah, blah, blah. blah. And then happens the consciousness of the red tomato. Oh. Where does that happen in the brain? Oh, here. Mm-hmm. Is that a theory of consciousness? No, because we now want to say, and then what happens? Mm-hmm. What entitles you to say that that's consciousness? Well, presumably it's because when you get into that state, now you're able to say, hey, I see a red tomato, and wonder whether you'd like to eat a red tomato, and reach out and grab a red tomato, and add to your memory the fact that you have recently seen a red tomato, and remember that time that somebody threw a rotten tomato at you, and all this, there's the, all the things that follow the sequelae of this conscious experience. And everybody should realize that we have to explain how those sequelae can be the sequelae. Mm-hmm. And if you don't even address that question, of course you've got a mystery. Mm-hmm. You've only got half a theory of consciousness. It's like somebody who thinks that the product of the biological product of apple trees is apples. No, the biological product of apple trees is apple trees. Mm-hmm. You've got to do the rest of the story. Right, right. You, you don't understand what an apple is until you understand the role it plays in making another apple tree. And you don't understand the role of any event in the depths of the brain or on the cortex of the brain uh, until you've worked out with the same sort of care mm-hmm. and attention the the downstream further effects you've made great progress on the upstream you've figured out how the 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 different pathways and the different retinotopic maps put it together in a way now don't stop you you've just begun you're only halfway to a theory of consciousness so if you insist on asking the hard question and then what happens then you're back in business you got something to do mm-hmm. and of course all those answers are easy problems. But once you've got them all done, the idea that there's a leftover higher problem begins to diminish. So I have a quick question. So with that approach, 
have you ever as a as a scientist gotten to the point where you did get to the end like okay then what now what now what up oh, but that's it we we took it all the way for where it could go or, or are we still super early in that we've only sketched we've only sketched and and uh, but but it, progress is possible mm-hmm. but it does require a shift of emphasis and i think the best work on this right now is by the the french group stand hans group in paris because they are asking the hard question uh, about many areas, and they're beginning to get models that look promising. Mm-hmm. Still, they're still sketchy, of course, but I'm very pleased with their models because they're um, very congenial to the sketches that I had in Consciousness Explained. Yeah, so in, in my sense is to carry on what you were saying, that in neuroscience, the, the neuroscientists are essentially, they've ignored the heart problem because it doesn't really help their research and they're stopping they're not really asking anymore like where is the seat of consciousness or what's the neuroanatomical correlate of consciousness and they're just trying to break it down into easy problems that they can't answer well 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 that's fine but what they shouldn't do is concede the Chalmers dichotomy yeah I agree they're not doing that, that um, they should they should instead of saying well we're not tackling the heart problem they should say Maybe we're tackling the higher problem. Maybe we're not. We're tackling the problems, yeah. and we are intent on going all the way through and asking the hard questions. Yeah. And come back in ten years and let's see whether we've, en passant, as it were, answered yeah. the higher problem. It seems so yes. obvious, though, that by by the, the sheer nature of what we're talking about, that you have to understand the nuances. You, you can't just say, "Hey, here's an explanation of the big brushstroke," without understanding all the nuances. But if you have all the nuances defined, then you're in good shape. Well. The reason you have to do the big brush strokes is because otherwise you're really clueless about what questions to ask. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it again in computer terms. Um, I'm still a big fan of thinking of the brain as a computer, although it's a very different computer from the uh, uh, computers that we have in our pockets. Um, but it is a computer, and we need to use the vocabulary and the concepts of computer science to understand it. And think of how at sea you would be figuring out what, the meaning of program states were if you didn't know whether it was running a, a chess playing program or a spreadsheet. Oh, I got you. Okay, so that's oh. a good way to describe it. You'd be clueless. I mean, yeah. you can't, no bottom up examination neuron by neuron is going to tell you what's happening. It just isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that would be a, a superhuman, actually, a, a coincidental stroke of luck, a, a, such a cosmic coincidence if you figured it out that n- nobody would believe you. Right. Um, so you have you to come have from the to top have, down, You too. have to have the top down. Yeah. Um, uh, this has been understood for many years. I think David Marr in his famous book, Vision, uh, divided it up into three levels. Uh, he, I think, mistakenly called the top level the computational level. Uh, but it, but it's it's the, I call it the intentional level, where you're talking about the meanings of things and Mm -hmm. where you it looks like psychology you talk about beliefs and desires and intentions and so forth but you're talking about their subpersonal neural implementations could you guys explain something to me so when you when research is being done to figure out how the brain works i I don't really understand the process at all like do you are you taking slices of of a brain studying the, the structure then trying to apply Exterior. No, uh, no I'm, I'm not. I'm not doing lab bench science myself at all. But that's not what typically what they do. There's some people that are neuroanatomists, functional neuroanatomists that work with slices of brain. But but that's 
sort of not where the action is in most regards. Um, the problem in brain research has been, especially with human brains, is that there aren't very powerful non-invasive techniques for getting at, at what's going on inside. But they're getting better and better. There's been a series of great advances. So we're now getting to the point where we really can begin to gather data. There's two dimensions that really matter. One is spatial, one is temporal. fMRI, the fabled fMRI with all the beautiful colored pictures, the temporal resolution of those is lousy. And moreover, it takes a lot of processing to get them. So you can't do sort of real-time you can't do interactive things where, depending on what signal you see in the brain, you do this and as an experimenter. It's, it's sort of like back in the days when computer programs, you had to take a stack of cards to the computer lab and have it, have the cards run through the machine and read, you know, it was, took forever to do anything. Well, brain science has been like that up until very recently and, and it's early days. And there's a lot of people who just aren't asking good questions yet. Yeah. And so it's early days, but uh, it, it's a great time to be a neuroscientist because there's great techniques, great data, just floods of data coming in. And until we had the great techniques and the great data, we actually, I think, did a lot of good work, uh, pretty well eliminating a lot of tempting but second-rate theories. <laughs> so we don't have to waste any more time working on them. We can, we can start asking good questions. So to get back to David Chalmers a bit, first I wanted to see if I got, or I wrapped my head around what you're saying. So the dualist approach sometimes is to say, okay, you have the inputs of sensory input or thought input or whatever, gets to a certain level and then consciousness happens. And what you're saying is, no, you have to keep going because that, that, what you're saying, consciousness happens, also breaks down to a bunch of easy problems of memory and, and et cetera. Um, but what, what, from what I understand, what Chalmers is inserting into that is th- this notion of qualia, that there is something experiencing this processing. So I understand, you know, again, I, I agree with your position that, well, that's all just an illusion of the seamless processing of all the, of all the, the sub, you know, circuits that are going on. So, but wh- how do you address the issue of qualia? Why does qualia exist? What is it? Okay. How would you explain yeah. it? First of all, it's, a, it's it's not a term of everyday use. It's a philosophical term, and philosophers have not done a good job of defining it, and I've challenged the definitions and said basically they should throw the term out and try to get by with something, even something new that doesn't have all the connotations. But uh, qualia are supposedly the uh, atomic, unanalyzable, uh, uniform sensory experiences, the 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 smell of a rose, the the shade of red, the particular nuance of a pain in your toe, um, those are qualia. Um, but of course, what makes them qualia is that they're experienced. So we don't have to have the qualia and the qualia experiencer. There's got to be something. No yet sense having qualia just out there. They got to be somebody's qualia. Now the 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 most tempting thing in the world, in spite of my decades of of ridicule, is to suppose there's a place in the brain where there's a second transduction into the medium of qualia, and there's a sort of theater, the Cartesian theater, where the qualia are then enjoyed by the inner witness, the audience in the Cartesian theater. It's amazing how 
irresistible, that idea is, and it's just flat wrong. There's no Cartesian theater, and there's no inner witness, or that is, but then how, how does, how does it happen? And how do we answer the, and then what happens? Question. The answer is, has to be, all that work that the inner witness was going to do has to be done, and it has to be parceled out, outsourced to other neural agencies scattered through the brain in both space and time. Some of the appreciation happens early. The idea that, that, Visions get started and Trump, Trump. Now finally we get up to the, to the consciousness and that's where the, that's where the appreciation happens. Actually, no. Mm-hmm. For instance, for colors, early on in the stream, already affective signals have been sent. The, I like this color. I don't like this color. That's all that, that little micro part of your consciousness is settled relatively early in the process. So some of the reactions to experience happen practically on the retina, and and they're spread through space and time. We have this illusion that it all comes up to this summit where the action happens. That's just, you have to wean yourself of that way of thinking. It's not right. Okay, I got to put this in, in much simpler terms so I can, I got to wrap my head around this. So I, I tended to think that the front of your brain, the cerebral cortex, like where, where you're, where you're that, that's kind of where it's all happening. That's where the consciousness is. Right? I'm sure I'm wrong in a million ways, but I always thought that different parts of the brain are just sending information to the, your, your frontal lobe and where the, where like, the appreciation is yeah the, and there's a filter there right yeah. so, so to, to simplify yeah. the the experience but what you're saying is if i'm correct is that the like it's all happening everywhere it's not just in this one part of your no. brain that the, the experiences that we're having are all shared all over the place and there's not really one place in your brain that consciousness sits yeah the frontal lobes do play an important role in evaluation and and planning and and things like that but not because they get a, they, they and they alone see the show, as it were. It's not as if the, the show, the rest of the cortex sends a show to the frontal cortex. No. And the decision making and the evaluation is also distributed. Mm-hmm. And hierarchical. Like we're making some. Well, yes and no. Hierarchical turns out, uh, I've just been uh, d- discussing this even today in email with, with a colleague. We're learning that hierarchies which were a pretty good first cheap idea about how organizations should should be organized. You have a boss, you know, a president, some vice presidents, some mid-level management, and you, you have these cascades of hierarchies with a chain of command. Mm-hmm. And m- many organizations are organized that way. Armies. Uh, 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 turns out that they're not very agile. And there's... there's many difficulties with this hierarchical organization. Mm-hmm. And so people have been experimenting. This I'm not talking about brains right now. I'm talking about corporations, yeah. for instance. Experimenting with sort of eliminating the CEO, taking the responsibilities of the CEO and somehow distributing them so that the CEO becomes a sort of like like a like a uh, like the Queen of England, you know, just a ceremonial leader, not really do, you know, where the action is. Yeah, a figurehead, exactly. Corporations are now beginning to think about this. They call it holacracy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see what these 
Silicon Valley holacracies, how well they they manage. Um, but definitely, brains are holacracies. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no boss. Yeah. There's no vice presidents. It's what it is is not a complete anarchy, but it's more anarchic than almost all existing models suggest. In fact, that's one of my big themes is that mm-hmm. the architectures that we've explored for the last 25 years are most of them way too efficient and hierarchical and organized and polite. And we've got to introduce a lot more competition and redundancy and waste and, mm-hmm. and combat and competition, uh, uh, in, in a, a sort of a, semi-anarchic state. We see that in nature, don't we? Ant colonies, um, flocks of birds. There's nobody directing the show. They they all have similar tasks and responsibilities. They go about it, and the structure of an ant colony is an emergent phenomenon that just comes, and nobody has a plan to build it. It's just kind of organically uh, is created. Absolutely. The the fact that, that, um, that there's queen bees and queen termites and, and queen naked mole rats, those, they're not the political bosses they're 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 more like the crown jewels they're where the they're where the eggs are but they <laughs> I think I was very influenced by those plastic brain models where like the the blue sport this is this is where vision happens this is where memory is you know like and then that that makes me question all of the that all those things that I learned it's more from what you're saying yeah there might be focuses in the brain well, it's it's not uniformly distributed and there's there definitely are very specialized functional areas uh but they're not the functional areas of tradition they're not the folk psychological functional areas it's not that there's a belief box and a desire box and a and a hopes box and things like that those that's just the wrong way to try to carve anything up well professor Denner, we really appreciate you giving us your time this has been fascinating i've been looking forward to interviewing you for a long time actually well, well it's been fun All right, guys, we're going to take another break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses. And we have a new course to tell you about this week, Impossible, The Physics Beyond the Edge, taught by Professor Benjamin Schumacher. Uh, Professor Schumacher does a really great job with this course. I listened to the first one today. It's called From Principles to Paradoxes and Back Again. And basically what he's explaining to us is the difference between or our limitations in, in physics as far as what we do know and are able to know and what is impossible for us to figure out. Yeah, I really like the format that he uses. I mean, basically he's teaching physics, but he's doing it with a really good twist, which is how do we know that certain things are impossible based upon the laws of physics? Like I, I just listened to and really enjoyed the episode where he tells us why there won't be giant ants picking up and throwing tanks, Cool, for example. <laughs> to me, that is a, the perfect tool for skeptics because you need some way – to, to get your skeptical sense tingling and having this basic foundation of what's plausible and what is impossible is a key thing to have for you to see these red flags that otherwise would just pass beneath your notice. There are so many great courses available, over 500 subjects, including science, math, history. We want you to give it a try. So we have a special offer for our listeners. You can order Impossible Physics Beyond the Edge and get 80% off the original price. But that 80% savings is only available for a limited time. So go now to thegreatcourses.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcourses.com forward slash skeptics. All right, guys. Now let's get back to our show. 
It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. And I challenge my panelists of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. It's similar to a theme that we've used recently. <laughs> the theme is water in our solar system. Wow. Okay. okay. All right, then. Three questions. Here they three are. Finger, three fingers. Ready? Item number one, there is more water in the Earth's atmosphere than in all the world's freshwater lakes. Item number two, all the water on Jupiter's moon Europa is two to three times all the water on or near the surface of the Earth. And item number three, scientists have discovered that water rain falls on large parts of Saturn's upper atmosphere, originating from water in the rings. Apparently, this one's about water. Evan, go first. There is more water in the Earth's atmosphere than in all the world's fresh water lakes. All right. Well, you just kind of have to take a guess at, at this one. I mean, how, who the heck's going to know that off the top of their head? I think that one's going to wind up being true. Lots of atmosphere out there, lots of water in the atmosphere. I think it's more. Uh, the second one about water on Jupiter's moon Europa, two to three times all the water on or near the surface of the Earth. Uh, what do we... Steve, can, is it possible to define near the surface of the Earth a little more? Are we saying atmosphere up to a mile or something? I mean, So that includes any uh, water on top of the, of the ground or underneath the ground, but oh. doesn't include any theoretical deep, deep, deep water. Well, um, I'll, I, I have a feeling that one's going to wind up being true as well. Yeah, I, I'm just ignorant of the size of Europa and how to really compare it. I, I, but the last one, scientists discovered that water rain falls on large parts of Saturn's upper atmosphere, originally from the water in the rings. Okay, so there is there is kind of snow and mud and dirt and other wet things out there um, among the rings, as I understand it. B but they fall onto Saturn's upper atmosphere, so... Wouldn't we see that? Wouldn't that manifest itself into some sort of um, visual representation that we would sometimes see? And I don't know that we ever really see that. You know, even if it's like a little dusting a trail or something, I think some of our, our amazing stellar photography would have picked that up by now. We'd have some pictures or evidence of that. And I don't know that we've got that. Or, well, maybe they just now have it. But I'd be surprised, and I think that would have made a bigger splash <laughs> in the news this week. I'm going to say the Saturn one is uh, fiction. Okay, Bob. Yeah, I don't know. This just seems too easy. Um, more water in their atmosphere than I thought you were going to say the oceans. But, uh, but freshwater lakes? Yeah, I mean, damn, there's a lot of water in the atmosphere. Uh, but I could be surprised. So the second one, uh, Jupiter's moon Europa, uh, two to three times. It's a lot of water. I haven't read any of this recently, but I just seem to remember something about Europa having more. So that wouldn't surprise me. But two to three is pretty big. But the third one, I, I'm going with Evan here. This is, the, I mean, not, I don't think that we should necessarily be able to see the rain, uh, because it would be very subtle, I would think. But it says water rain, water, I mean, does that, does that imply liquid to you guys? I guess. Um, then wouldn't it just be snow or, or hail? Um, all right. I just changed my mind because I know that there's this, there's a limit 
an orbital limit for things in orbit, obviously. Um, if you're within that limit, then you could be in orbit, but you will slowly and inexorably fall to the planet. And luckily for us, the moon was outside of that limit. No, the Roche limit. I think it's the Roche, Roche. limit. I think the moon luckily was outside that <laughs> limit, which is why all that debris just didn't rain back down on the Earth. So, and I also know that the rings of Saturn are going to be raining down eventually. May, could be, I don't know how long, a million years, 10,000 years, but in, eventually the rings will disappear, which would be a very sad day. So then I could totally see this, which means I've got to pick one or two now that has to be fiction. All right. I think, the, I think the freshwater one is, is a da, is, is, uh, something funky about that. Uh, I'm going to say the earth atmosphere is one is fake. Okay, uh, Rebecca. Okay, yeah, obviously. Like, I can't even deal with the second two because I can't get over the absurdity of the idea that there's more water in the Earth's atmosphere than in all the world's freshwater lakes. I mean, yeah, because that includes, I assume that includes, like, all fresh water, right? Like... Well, does it not include rivers? Is that not the not no, ponds? It, it, doesn't it say doesn't, rivers. It includes rivers just and lakes. Ponds? Okay, does not include rivers. Does not include aquifers. Just lakes. <laughs> what about like underground lakes? Yeah, isn't that where most? That's where most fresh water is. Now, those are right? aquifers. So no, just surface lakes. Ha! Huh. Surface freshwater lakes. Oh, okay. Well, now I'm not so sure. <laughs> 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 I mean, it certainly seems. No, I'm I I still think that that's dumb. Like, yeah, there's obviously there's a lot of water in our atmosphere, but it's not so much that we're drowning. So (laughs) I I think that that one is the fiction. And Jay, no, we all know that there's moisture, of course, in the atmosphere. I mean, there's a lot of clouds, you know, and all those clouds are made out of moisture. I just don't know if you condensed it all down, would it be more? Or less than all the freshwater lakes. That's a, that's a great, great way to look at it, Steve. Very cool question. Yeah, my gut was saying no to that one right out of the gate just because there's so much freshwater, you know, in lakes and rivers and in the ground itself. You know, the water table is everywhere for the most part. So quite a bit, quite a bit of water out there. So all the water, Jupiter's moon. That's a cool, cool one. I just don't know enough about that. I mean, sure, I think that that one is absolutely plausible. And then this last one about water raining down from Saturn's rings. See, I that one to me is the no-brainer. I know what, what a lot of the rings are composed of, and I don't think it's weird at all that, that particles from those rings would be coming into the into Saturn and then, you know, melting and turning it, you know, going from ice to water or anything like that. So that one I know is, in my opinion, is is... Science. Water though, Jay. Water. I mean, yeah, but Bob, there's pretty, there's, pretty there's cold. Frozen rock and uh, all sorts of stuff in those rings, and a lot of a lot of frozen water. Yeah, but not liquid. Yeah, but it melts. It probably isn't liquid until it until it hits the atmosphere. You know, it, get, it picks up some speed from falling and friction and whatnot. You know, it's my guess, but I'm just out of the three of these, that's the one that seems the most obviously truthful. I go with the the uh, the first one as the fake, the one about the world's freshwater lakes one. Fake. All so you all agree with number two. So we'll start there. All the water on Jupiter's moon Europa is two to three times all the water on or near the surface of the Earth. You all think that one is science, and that one is 
Come on, baby. Science. Yeah. So uh, there's actually a very cool picture that you can see where if you took all of the water in Europa and made it into a sphere of pure water, Mm. you could see how big that sphere of water would be. Oh, cool. Compared to the size of Europa itself and compared to the size of the Earth. And then you also see a globe of all the water on Earth. And yeah, uh, Europa has its its globe of water is bigger. Uh, wow. So yeah, the water on Europa were gathered into a ball. It would have a radius of 877 kilometers. Um, and that's two to three times the volume of water on the Earth's surface. However, I, that doesn't include the possibility of there being, you know, two to three times as much water underneath the Earth yes. you know, in the deep, in the deep Earth. Uh, so I specifically exclude that. If you recall, we talked about that item not too long ago, where they discovered yep, yep. that the Earth may have a huge underground "quote unquote" ocean. That was so. They June. might be roughly. They might be roughly equal. Then, yeah. If you include that water, it might be roughly equal. Or the Earth would have a little bit more if you include if their estimates of that that water are accurate. Pretty cool. So obviously, this makes Europa. When you think about it, there's more water in Europa than on the surface of the Earth. That certainly would be a big enough ocean to be sporting some life. You know. All right. Let's go on to number. One, three. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> Bob, Jay, and Rebecca think this Actually, one is the fiction. Everyone thinks this one is science. There is more water in the Earth's atmosphere than in all the world's freshwater lakes. And this one is. Say it. The fiction. Yeah! Fictitiousness. Hello. I knew it. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, the percentage of the uh, water on the earth that is in the freshwater lakes is 0.007. The percentage of the water that's in the atmosphere is 0.001. So there's seven times seven as much times. in the lakes as there is in the atmosphere. That's However, good. the percentage that's in the rivers is 0.0002. So there's five times as much in the atmosphere as there are in all the world's rivers. Mm. Okay. So, yeah. But not as much as in the lakes. It's still very small, and you know, a tiny percentage, like point three percent of all the water on Earth, is actually potable. There's water that we could drink. Most of the water is not potable. Gotcha. Most of it, obviously, is in the oceans. Is salt water? So ninety-six point five four percent is in the oceans, seas, and bays. One point seven four percent in ice caps, glaciers, and permanent frost, permanent snow. Although most of the fresh water is in ice. Baby. Okay. <laughs> Go on. All of this means that scientists have discovered that water rain falls on large parts of Saturn's upper atmosphere originating from water in the rings is science. This is actually a news item from a year ago that we never talked Whoa. about. From 2013. Uh, astronomers using the Keck Observatory discovered rain falling on, falling from Saturn's rings. It's called ring rain. Good creative name there. Yep, not to be confused with the ring wraiths. <laughs> that's right. You got to be careful, <laughs> oh, man. That's yeah. a good point. Don't screw Very that up. Point. Yeah. Or ringworm, I think as somebody said. Yeah. <laughs> so, and Bob, it's these are charged molecules charged. of water. And what's happening is that the ionosphere of Saturn's upper atmosphere is essentially attracting these charged water molecules from the rings. 
And those molecules of water are raining down on the upper atmosphere of Saturn. Wow. And it's actually much more widespread than they thought. And originally they thought it's ju- it would just be like in a band or where the rings are, but it's actually a, over most of Saturn. It's a, you know, that water is finding its way into, you know, most of the upper atmosphere of Saturn. I guess, I, I guess that means that the, um, the infall of the rings onto Saturn due to the Roche limit then, I guess, is, hasn't really started yet. Yeah. This is different. This is. Yeah. Because it's magnetically attracting these charged particles. Okay, right for the wrong reason, I'll take it. Yeah. Every but that's time. cool. Ring rain. That is cool. That, that to my list of cool astronomical stuff. Good job, guys. Evan, thank you. The thank you. This week. Thank What'd you, you call me? The outlier. I, 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 oh, outlier. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's fine. I've never I, been arrested I, I in my see. life. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, you got a quote for us this week? This quote was sent in by a listener from Norway, and his name. And I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, I'm going to try with the first name. Ha- I think it's Haken. Con, Con Haken. 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 Haken Bogen. That's uh, a cool name. Yeah, Great it is name. a very cool yeah, name. I like from, that name. Uh, me too. It's kind of like a superhero name. It's like the shout out mapes. The Haken Bogen. <laughs> he sent the quote in from one of Rebecca's. He sent the quote in. Yeah. From one of Rebecca's yeah. famous, favorite comic strips online. XKCD. I, be- I believe the author's name is Randall Monroe. Randall. Is that correct? Okay, so here it is. This is a question and answer, so these are two characters. Hey, if all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you jump too? Uh, oh geez, probably. What? Why? Because all my friends did. Think about it. Which scenario is more likely? Every single person I know, many of them level-headed and afraid of heights, abruptly went crazy at exactly the same time, or the bridge is on fire? Ha. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, got it. Hey, we got some upcoming live events we'd like to tell you about. The SGU and George Hrab are essentially going on tour. We're going to be starting in San Francisco on November 22nd at 2.30 p.m. The Bay Area Skeptics are hosting uh, a live SGU George Hrab event. This is going to be uh, a show that we're producing and we're going to also do the same show on the Friday night in Sydney before the Skeptics Conference there and the Friday night in Auckland before the New Zealand Skeptical Conference. It's essentially a skeptical extravaganza, which will include music and games and a quiz show, and it'll be, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, in addition, of course, we will be at the Australian Skeptical National Convention November 28th through 30th in Sydney, Australia. And the following weekend, we're going to be at the New Zealand Skeptics Conference in Auckland. That will be December 5th through 7th. We'll be having a, a dinner for, uh, for local skeptics the Monday before the Australia, the Sydney Conference in Canberra and the Monday before the New Zealand Conference in Wellington. So the, the details are still being worked out, but you can, uh, look up those conference pages for information, and uh, as things get solidified, we'll have all the information on the SGU website as well. So check it out for updates, um, and of course, we'll keep you updated on the show as well. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Anytime, Steve. Uh, yeah, hey, Steve. Hey, good to see you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> 
The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.